And you remember what happened in Arizona. 5.7 million spent on the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> spent on the who? What did he say? Ninja Turtles. That's what I thought he said. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Would have been a better investment. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Hello there. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon, on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, Oh, I hope we get to talk about Wisconsin today. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says you and me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We've got all kinds of stuff to cover today from all over the map, frankly. Uh, So I'm not even sure where we're going to go or how much we are going to get through, Desi Doyen. But hello. Nice to see you. It will be an adventure. It will be an adventure for you and me alike. (laughs) All right. We got all kinds of stuff, as I say. So let me just start here with uh, this. Uh, Evidence emerged Tuesday that a ship's anchor snagged and dragged an underwater pipeline that ruptured and spilled tens of thousands of gallons of crude off of Southern California, an accident that the Coast Guard acknowledged it did not investigate for nearly 10 hours after the first call came in about a possible leak. Ten hours. The pipe was split open and a nearly mile-long section apparently pulled along the ocean floor, possibly by, uh, quote, an anchor that hooked the pipeline, causing a partial tear, according to uh, federal transportation investigators. The spill sent up to, as you know, well, they're saying 126,000 gallons. We have since learned it is more than that. We have long warned you that those early numbers are always lowball numbers. But uh, at least 126,000 gallons of heavy crude into the ocean off of Huntington Beach down here in Southern California. It then washed onto miles of beaches and a protected marshland. Coast Guard officials defend their decision to wait until sunrise Saturday to investigate a possible spill that was first reported by a commercial ship at 8.22 p.m. on Friday, 
near a cluster of boats that were anchored off of uh, off of uh, Huntington Beach. That sighting was reported by another report to the National Response Center, which is a hazardous spill hotline staffed by the Coast Guard at 2.06 a.m. on Saturday morning from the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. NOAA called the hotline uh, and said that satellite images showed the strong likelihood of an oil slick. So they had a report on at 8 p.m., or a little after 8 p.m. on Friday, another report in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. on Saturday. Still no action by the Coast Guard. Residents in nearby Newport Beach had also complained Friday night about a strong stench of petroleum, and police put out a notice to the public about it. So everybody knew about it, and nobody appears to have acted on it for hours as crude was gushing into the ocean. The Coast Guard was alerted to a sheen on the water by a, quote, good Samaritan, they say, but did not have enough corroborating evidence. And they were hindered by darkness and a lack of technology to seek out the spill. That, according to Coast Guard Rear Admiral Brian Penoyer, uh, in, in, a, in an interview with the, uh, with the Associated Press, he said the Coast Guard put out a broadcast to the many cargo and tanker ships anchored off of Los Angeles and Long Beach ports, along with oil rigs seeking more information, but did not receive any response. Coast Guard Captain Rebecca Orr, however, later disputed that account. She said the Coast Guard did not broadcast any information to ships or oil platforms, and Penoyer later conceded he needed to check his facts. Hmm. But some of this is sort of mind boggling to me. Remember, at all of these hours, you know, this pipeline is ruptured open and spewing dirty crude into the ocean. Now, I would say that the Coast Guard has a point when they say it is difficult to get corroborating information when it's at night. And we're talking about a very large area, several square miles. However, once you have NOAA satellites saying, hey, we see something on the water, that's when they should have jumped into Correct. action. And that information about NOAA came before they said they had no corroborating information right. later on, as so, I, if I understand this timeline. So, uh, so in other words, they were notified by a good Samaritan. They were notified uh, by the police in Huffington, in Huffington, in uh, 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 Huntington, Huntington Beach, Beach uh, the, you know, who had put out a notice about this stench. Then they get the information from Noah from the satellite. I mean. It's a big question. I will say that Representative Katie Porter, who uh, represents portions mm -hmm. of Orange County, which is where Huntington Beach and the other beaches are located, yep. says that she plans to grill everybody on, the, on this to find she, out what the delay was. Yeah. And when Katie Porter is going to grill someone... Um, You'll be very well grilled. <laughs> yes. Federal pipeline safety investigators put the time of the spill at 2.30 a.m. on Saturday, which is when they said an alarm sounded in the control room of one of the offshore rigs by Amplify Energy Corporation. That's the owner of uh, the several platforms and the 17 and a half mile pipeline that is involved here. But that was hours 
2.30 a.m., that was hours after residents had already notified officials of the petroleum smell and after NOAA had called in their satellite observation of a possible oil slick. Uh, but the alert at the uh, rig owned by Amplify at 2.30 a.m., that was hours after many of these other reports. The, their uh, systems went off with an alert that pressure had dropped in the pipeline, indicating a possible leak, but apparently not until 2.30 a.m. Why did the alert of the pressure drop take so long to happen or at least to be noticed? And then it was not until 6.01 a.m. on Saturday that, according to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, that the pipeline was finally shut off. Almost 12 hours after the first reports were known uh, a little bit after 8 p.m. the night before. The Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration uh, said the pipeline was finally shut off 6.01 a.m. The company, Amplify, claims that they were not aware of the spill until they saw a sheen on the water at 8.09 a.m. on Saturday. An hour after sunrise. And they were not aware of a spill until they actually saw it with their own eyes, even though their own equipment had set, uh, set off an alert that there had been a pressure drop in the pipeline in the middle of the night, they claim, on Saturday. But, of course, by then, thousands of barrels of crude had already spilled into the water. Moreover, the pipeline company did not report the spill Saturday until either 8.55 a.m. Now, mind you, they said they saw the sheen on the water at 8.09 a.m. And it was not reported until either 8.55 a.m., almost an hour later, based on a state report, or 9.07 a.m. That, according to the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. At that point, the Coast Guard had been on the water for a couple of hours and discovered the spill as Amplify was finally making the report. The Coast Guard was finally out there. They took hours, but they were finally out there before the company even made their own report. The company's spill response plan calls for the immediate notification of a spill. Criminal charges have been brought in the past when a company took too long to notify federal and state officials of a spill. I hope that will be the case here. But here's the thing. The company claimed that the pipeline included, you know, the best top technology for spill or leak detection. And that is the same thing that we always hear in all of these various um, projects, these protests against all of the various new pipelines that oil and gas companies have been trying to build in recent years, furiously trying to get this infrastructure in, that activists have been trying to get to either stop from being built or or try to get shut down, you know, from the Keystone XL running from Canada to Texas to the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota to the Line 3 Pipeline in uh, Minnesota, I think. It's in the Great Lakes, it goes through one of the Great Lakes. Uh, we, so we are always told that these pipelines, you don't have to worry about it because they have the, the best tech that would instantly notice any leaks and just shut it down so you don't have to worry, all you whining tree huggers. In this case, 
the company made similar claims about their pipeline, even though it is a much older pipeline. And uh, obviously, that high-tech instant notification and shutdown system did not work. Now, by the way, as to the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota, the Trump administration allowed uh, that pipeline to start up, even though, as a federal judge later found, the required environmental review was not actually done lawfully. And that judge ordered it to be done a second time, this time to be done correctly. That is underway now, but it has allowed the pipeline to continue. The judge allowed the pipeline to continue shipping hundreds of thousands of barrels of crude a day over sensitive areas, even while this uh, second environmental view is going on. <clears throat> that pipeline has has since had uh, what is it like five leaks? It's had Desi, six, leaks six leaks in the first six months of its uh, of its operation and several leaks along the entire route. Yes. And that's only over the past year since uh, it began operation. And the company who owns it, Energy Transfer Partners, well, they are now facing dozens of criminal charges in Pennsylvania for leaks discovered in their pipelines in that state. They have uh, uh, those leaks have uh, allegedly made their way into the state's drinking water. Desi Doyen will have more on that part of this story in our latest Green News report a little bit later this hour. Yeah, it's pretty wild that it's the same company. Yep. Long story short, however, speaking at a news conference this week, California's Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who declared a state of emergency following that spill, repeated his calls for the U.S. to move beyond oil, saying, quote, it's time once and for all to disabuse ourselves that this has to be part of our future. This, he said, is part of our past. He was speaking from Bolsa Chica State Beach, where he was joined by local, state and federal officials to discuss the spill. California has been a leader in restricting offshore oil drilling, uh, going all the way back to that infamous 1969 Santa Barbara spill that sparked the modern environmental movement. But it is apparently, according to AP, easier said than done, even in California, to uh, end such drilling altogether. While the state has not issued any new leases in state water in five decades, drilling from existing platforms does continue. Similarly, an effort right now in Congress, I believe it's part of the Build Back Better Act, that aims to halt all new drilling in federal waters, more than uh, three miles off of the coast, that would not stop the drilling that is already happening. That only uh, uh, appeals to uh, to new drilling in federal waters. Yeah, it's really difficult to unwind existing leases. Highly, highly difficult legally. Last year, Newsom signed an executive order banning the sale of new gas-powered vehicles in the state by 2035. Uh, which uh, some scientists say is not nearly soon enough. Newsom uh, acknowledged, however, as you say, Des, that it's easier to resist new drilling than it is to wind down stuff that already exists. He said banning new drilling is not complicated. The deeper question is how do you transition and still protect the workforce when you're talking about uh, these uh, older uh, platforms that have been in operation now for decades. Today, there are 19 oil and gas agreements in California's coastal water and 1,200 active wells. Uh, 
In federal waters, there are 23 oil and gas production facilities off the state's coast. So now what? Don't know. Stay tuned. But this has got to stop. Uh, And as I said, uh, more on that in Desi's GNR a little bit later. Uh, Here's some good news. Some brighter news. That, you know, I think <laughs> Hopefully. It may, may be about the only bright news we have today. But last week at Bradblog.com, our own legal contributor, uh, Ernie Canning, po- posted an item on why he believed that the Department of Justice was likely to prevail in their attempted lawsuit to obtain a temporary injunction in federal court against Texas's newly enacted ban on abortions after six weeks before most women even know that they are pregnant because the law was written in a way to purposely evade judicial review by mandating citizens to file civil suits, vigil anti-fashion, if you will, against anyone who either obtains or even helps someone obtain an abortion after six weeks. For example, famously, an Uber driver could be sued uh, for driving a woman to a clinic. Anyway, it was meant it was written to evade judicial review rather than empowering law enforcement officials to enforce the ban by having citizens enforce it. The law was allowed several weeks ago to stand by the GOP's stolen and packed six to three U.S. Supreme Court because it was unclear who, if anyone, actually had legal standing to sue to block this law since It was unclear who to actually sue at the time that uh, the whole women's health clinic in Texas had filed their motion to try to uh, prevent this law from going into effect. Nobody had yet been sued or harmed by the act. So it was unclear that anybody had any standing. And while the Supreme uh, Supreme Court rejected the clinic's emergency uh, review there, theoretically on that basis, that there was not appropriate legal standing. We don't know for sure because the court issued their decision via their so-called shadow docket before, just a week or so before they were in session this term. uh, And so they actually did not hear the case. And while even Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's three liberals to try and temporarily block the law from going into effect until it could actually be heard, uh, since it is such a clear violation of the longstanding constitutional right to an abortion established uh, as settled law by the court some 50 years ago, Nonetheless, the court's five other Republican appointees let the law go into effect, stopping almost all abortions overnight in the Lone Star State. Well, that lawsuit uh, was rejected by the high court for the moment. The U.S. Department of Justice subsequently intervened to file their own complaint in federal court against the law, which, as Ernie documented, uh, the DOJ is really the one and only entity that actually had the legal jurisdictional standing at the time to file a lawsuit. Uh, And because of that, Ernie predicted that with that standing, the U.S. District Court Judge Robert Pittman would indeed temporarily enjoin the state's six-week abortion ban with a preliminary injunction. Well, the case was heard last Friday, and on Wednesday night, Judge Pittman issued his 113-page ruling 
doing exactly that, shutting down for now the Texas law. As Ernie writes in an update today to his item last week, uh, describing Texas Senate Bill 8 or SB 8 as, quote, flagrantly unconstitutional and adding that, quote, this court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right. U.S. District Court Judge Pittman granted the federal government's motion for a preliminary injunction. The new injunction temporarily blocks enforcement of the Lone Star State's six-week abortion law, which, by the way, also has no exception for abortions in the case of rape or incest. Yes, that uh, state of Texas, as run by right-wingers who pretend to be so-called conservatives, who pretend to be against so-called big government infringing on personal rights, just, you know, they like, for example, the right that the government should not come between a woman and her doctor. Remember when they used to pretend to be outraged about Obamacare because <laughs> it would... But the no government one, between you and your doctor. Correct. Anyway, um... They uh, that their their law attempted to force to force all women in the state to bear the child of their rapist. Other than that, you know, personal freedom rights against big government. Yeah. Uh, anyway, thankfully for now, the federal court's decision on Wednesday expressly proscribes the initiation, administration, and docketing of SB 8 civil lawsuits, those civil lawsuits that the law had allowed, giving any litigant the opportunity to win at least $10,000 in their vigilante complaint. Um, the law applies to Texas, its officers, agents, not the law, the uh, court's ruling here, their the, the, the injunction. Uh, it applies to Texas, its officers, agents, employees, state court judges and clerks and anyone acting on behalf of the state of Texas. In other words, if anybody files a suit under this law for the time being, it shall not be placed on the docket while the law is uh, temporarily enjoined. Judge Pittman also rejected the state's request that the district court stay the preliminary injunction pending an appeal by Texas, saying, quote, the state has forfeited the right to any such accommodation by pursuing an unprecedented and aggressive scheme to deprive its citizens of a significant and well-established constitutional right. Noting that he disagreed with Judge Pittman's ruling, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton you remember him. He's the top law enforcement official in the state who has been facing criminal indictment on securities fraud charges for years. As he has served as the state's top law enforcement official, he is also currently being investigate, investigated by the FBI for criminal bribery and abuse of office following a criminal complaint that was filed by seven of his own top lieutenants in his own office. Yeah, that Ken Paxton announced that uh, his office has, quote, already taken steps to immediately appeal the ruling to the uh, ultra right wing U.S. Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. Absent an unlikely emergency appellate stay of Judge Pittman's ruling, Canning reports, Texas medical providers will immediately be able to resume in-state abortion services without risk of vigilante lawsuits 
at least for now. So we will likely be hearing from far right-wing U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal on this matter at some point in the near future. And no matter which way they decide, I suspect the matter will also then make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yep. Which has already docketed a 14-week abortion ban out of the state of Mississippi. If I remember correctly, uh, which specifically asks uh, the court to overturn Roe v. Wade to remove the federal constitutional right to legal abortion services, just as the same right wingers who stole and packed the high court's majority have sought for many, many years now. And after this term under the uh, this stolen right wing majority, it's very Possible, very likely even, that they will get their wish. Elections have consequences. Anyway, we will see for now, uh, for the moment, uh, some good news out of the state of Texas. Where am I here? Uh, uh, As we reported uh, yesterday, shortly after the news broke that Mitch McConnell and Republicans did indeed blink in his terroristic threat of sinking the U.S. and global economies by blocking the Democrats' attempt to raise the dumb debt ceiling. It was so dumb that any of this has to be done. So dumb that this is even a law. But anyway, the Democrats are attempting to raise it so that they can, uh, so that the U.S. Could, can continue to borrow the money needed to pay off its bills for stuff that Congress has already authorized the spending for, such as the $8 trillion in debt that was run up through deficit spending by Republicans during the Trump presidency. Well, on Thursday, Senate leaders announced an agreement to extend the government's borrowing authority into December, temporarily averting an unprecedented federal default that experts say would have devastated the economy. Hopefully the agreement will now move quickly through the Senate, though there are still some opportunities for Republican senators on their own to block this temporary measure that only holds all of this off until December Uh, Even as uh, but, you know, this still has to uh, get passed through both the Senate and the House uh, as the October 18 drop dead date, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, is uh, quickly approaching. At that time, the U.S. would run out of money to pay its debts for the first time in U.S. history. Hopefully that does not now happen as this bill is allowed to move forward allowed by Mitch McConnell and hopefully the rest of his Republican caucus. As AP describes it today, in their agreement, the Republican and Democratic leaders edged back from a perilous standoff over lifting the nation's borrowing cap. Got that? The Republican and the Democratic leaders, they both edged back. Both sides. This was a case of the Republican leader and the Republicans, all 50 of them in the Senate, holding the entire nation, the entire country hostage. Majority Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had nothing to edge back from. Why is this a both sides issue, AP? Unfortunately, they are not alone in their bad and misleading coverage of this. James Fallows at his Breaking the News newsletter has been following the mainstream corporate media coverage of this uh, GOP chaos mongering to, in his own words, see how and whether the press can keep its bearings 
and help the public do so during another dangerous episode in American governance. Now, if you only listen to the broadcast for your news, you probably don't understand how the media has been both sidesing this. What the uh, AP, what I just read there from the AP that you know, both Republican and Democratic leaders edged back from their perilous standoff. That's not actually all that unusual. We have seen a lot of mainstream media coverage like that. We do not cover it that way because we like to cover it accurately. We don't both sides it. We don't need to take a an unlevel playing field and somehow make it balanced for the bad guys. As Fallows reports, the debt limit is not a uh, is, is not a serious, quote, issue. He says there's no legitimate reason for po- politicians of either party to oppose raising the federal debt limit. None. The annual federal deficit, he notes, and the resulting cumulative federal debt are the results of decisions about taxes and spending that the Congress has already made. They're not the causes of the debt any more than a thermometer is the cause of a heat wave or of a fever. But it is not, while not an issue, it is a serious threat. In practice, hitting the limit or defaulting on the national debt can mean that the U.S. Treasury might have to suspend or curtail its issuance of federal bonds, notes, and bills, which in turn would disrupt markets and economies all around the world. And the crisis did not just, quote, happen, as many outlets have described it. Fallows notes one political party intentionally brought it on and has been defending it with arguments that combine cynicism with bad faith. All of these debt limit hypotheticals, he notes, would be behind us now and national energies could have been freed to face our zillion other problems were it not for intentional GOP obstruction. As a reminder, he says, uh, this could have all been over days ago. The problem persists only because every Republican in the Senate was willing to stand with McConnell and filibuster the debt limit bill. To what end? Well, to judge by Republicans' uh, own remarks, the motive appears to be embarrassing the Democrats by making them scramble to solve this manufactured crisis. Plus, according to John Cornyn of Texas, bogging them down in Uh, 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 parliamentary procedures to run out the clock and keep them from doing anything else. But as Fallows explains, that's not how it's come over in much of the press coverage for which he has identified some framing points to help the public understand how to read this coverage that they are seeing. He says to call this a disagreement between Republicans and Democrats is misleading. You can disagree about immigration or policy toward China or whatever, but this is not a disagreement. This is a nihilistic threat. To call it an impasse or a standoff is misleading as well. This is the kind of this is the same kind of impasse as one between, for example, a kidnapper demanding ransom for a captured executive and a company believes that it should not pay. That's the sort of impasse this is. He says it is not a level playing field difference of view. And that, I believe, is the disservice that AP did in describing the deal to move forward. McConnell dropping his nihilistic threat as, quote, the Republican and Democratic leaders edging back 
from a standoff. It was not a standoff. It was a hostage situation. And as Fallow, uh, uh, Fallows further points out here, to call it Washington dysfunction or the just the messy game of politics, he says, also distorts reality. The system may be broken, but someone specific did the breaking. Thank you, Mr. Fallows. All right. And if you wonder why it's uh, so easy to fool so many of the American people so often when our mainstream corporate media seems to have such a difficult time accurately framing these events, you can look at something like this and see why and see why so many people in the public are confused. So many people think, oh, Washington is broken. It's they're dysfunctional. Both parties are a disaster. Well, it's because of the media framing of so much of that uh, of this. Uh, to that end, uh, we have been seeing something similar over the past year or so regarding the 2020 election. And let me take a quick break here. We'll come back with that because we've got some new news and some new poorly reported news oh, on the 2020 <laughs> election, including poorly reported by the Democrats in Congress themselves. That and much more is straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Here's what we know about vaccines. One, they work. And two, vaccine requirements work. Since President Biden announced vaccine requirements less than one month ago, the number of people unvaccinated in this country went from 95 million down to 67 million, a drop of 30 percent of the unvaccinated population or 30 million people in one month alone. So in the words of the James Bond movie opening tonight, it's no time to die. It's time to get vaccinated. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was uh, the delightful Illinois Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, uh, who I actually love. I, just, I have never met him. I, I've never talked to him. I'll have to get him on the show at this point, I he think. He brings joy wherever he, he is, does. I have to say. I gotta say, he does. You're Even right. Even on really depressing topics. Uh, correct. Uh, that was uh, him, uh, Congressman Krishnamurthy. Uh, speaking before Joe Biden's remarks in Chicago on Thursday on uh, vaccine mandates and so forth. So, yeah, that'll cheer me up a little bit. All right. Back to where where were we? Oh, yeah. The media doing a terrible job at everything they're supposed to be doing. Well, let's uh, kick this part off with there was this today, I believe, uh, from uh, from Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. As he was announcing uh, today's report released on Donald Trump's attempt to use the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to steal the 2020 election. And uh, here, his comments uh, from Dick Durbin, he's not incorrect in his remarks uh, about the uh, phony post-election audit carried out by the Trumpers in Maricopa County, AZ. But see if you can spot where he, he misspeaks here just a bit. And you remember what happened in Arizona. 5.7 million 
spent on the Ninja Turtles who were going through all these ballots. And the net result was more votes for Biden, fewer votes for Trump. Uh, you know, I, you know at, at least the Ninja Turtles usually win in the end. <laughs> Are we sure he misspoke and wasn't uh, just trying to... A slight, trying uh, to give him a dig? Yeah. No, I will leave that to me. Uh, Yeah. But so, uh, because the Ninja Turtles, as I say, they do win. The Cyber Ninjas in Arizona apparently do anything but... But I'll get to a little bit more on that in a moment. Uh, Following an eight-month investigation, the Senate Judiciary Committee today released new testimony and a staff report titled Subverting Justice, How the Former President and His Allies Pressured DOJ to Overturn the 2020 Election. The report and testimony revealed uh, reveal that we were only a half step away from a full blown constitutional crisis as President Trump and his loyalists threatened a wholesale takeover of the Department of Justice. They also uh, reveal how former acting civil civil division assistant attorney general Jeffrey Clark became Trump's big lie lawyer, pressuring his colleagues in the DOJ to force an overturn of the 2020 election. I'm reading here from the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats' own announcement of this new report. They say the report sheds new light on Trump's relentless efforts to co-opt DOJ into overturning the 2020 election and Clark's efforts to aid Trump. The committee's interim report is the first comprehensive accounting of those efforts, which were even more expansive and troubling than previously reported. Now, uh, perhaps we'll get into the details of the report and the, the various new findings on another day. It's receiving a fair amount of coverage elsewhere today with a focus on uh, Jeffrey Clark that acting attorney general in the civil division and on his efforts to work with Trump and the White House to force the DOJ to declare that the election results were compromised or unreliable in some fashion and that the DOJ was investigating, even though the DOJ had not seen any evidence of wide scale uh, fraud or corruption in the 2020 election, as Trump's own attorney general had said a week or so before he ended up resigning from the post, no doubt because of the pressure by the president of the United States to make false claims about fraud. But much of the coverage today has taken the language of the Judiciary Committee Democrats, who in turn likely took their language, much of their language, from what has been reported by the media about all of this over the past year. And here's what I'd like to tell both the Democrats and the media. As I did earlier today on Twitter in a few remarks uh, there at uh, the Brad blog, uh, that have gone somewhat viralish today. In reading the coverage of this report today and, and the report itself, I see many references to Donald Trump attempting to, quote, overturn the election. That's not particularly helpful. If I was running for office, if I was a candidate and I lost an election and I went into the county registrar's office here in Los Angeles where I was where I was running and I tried to strong arm them into changing the results or announcing that I had actually won the election that I had lost, would that be an attempt to subvert the election? If I worked with a group of people and we called law enforcement 
after I lost the election. And I, you know, met with them in person to discuss how they might falsely claim that they had found fraud and claim that they were investigating widespread corruption of the voting and the reported results. And I'm not even the president of the United States, but if I did all of that, would that be me trying to subvert the results? Would the media say that I was attempting to overturn or subvert the election? Or would they say that I had formed a criminal conspiracy to try to steal the election? Donald Trump, the president of the United States, tried to steal the 2020 presidential election, period. And we need to start discussing it as such. It would be helpful if the media and Democrats in Congress or anywhere else actually reported that way. Donald Trump tried to steal the election. He was not trying to subvert it, subvert the election. He was not questioning the results, as many have reported he has done over the past year. He tried and arguably is still trying to steal it. I don't know why this is so difficult. Even big lie and self-coup, that language tends to sanitize the fact that the president of the United States tried to steal the 2020 election, a felony crime of the highest order. Reporting it as such would certainly make it much clearer what has actually happened here and is still happening here and would make it much clearer on what we need to do moving forward. I mean, it has been a year since Donald Trump's all-out effort to steal the presidential election. You would think that the media, much less Democrats in the Senate Judiciary Committee, would get that by now and start describing it as such. It's just a fact. And albeit a very serious accusation for sure that should you know you should never make that kind of accusation without hard evidence to prove it but we now have a mountain of such evidence including in the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats 394 page report published on Thursday I'll link to that report from bradblog.com when I post the show tonight but please keep that in mind when you are reading coverage or hearing coverage or watching coverage of today's Senate report when you are watching and reading and listening to media coverage of the first ever known attempt by a sitting president himself to personally try and steal a presidential election had to get that off my chest. Thank you. I appreciate it's that. It's been driving me crazy. I know I've mentioned it a few times, but, you know, seeing all the coverage of this report from the Senate Democrats, yay for them for doing this report. But uh, why are we still pussyfooting around what actually happened here? This criminal conspiracy. Right. So, uh, which brings us uh, sort of back to the Ninja Turtles in Arizona. <laughs> Uh, and their, this is quite a their epic failure. None of that seems to have dampened the spirit of the brain-poisoned folks who want to spend still more money, either wasted taxpayer dollars or donations by Trump dupes that goes into his pocket and you know the others who are making a mint off of this long con 
none of this seems to have dampened the spirit for more failed such audits like the one that was done in Maricopa. I don't know. Maybe if this was described for what it was, an attempt to steal the election. As a matter of fact, I had one uh, wingnut retweet my uh, short thread on all of this today saying, oh, he was trying to steal the already stolen election? Anyway, I promise I will not waste your time covering every jot and every beat of all of these uh, phony so-called audits that Republicans are uh, now demanding around the country after the 2020 election, particularly since they're, they're just not real audits. If they were real, I would have no problem covering them. They're not being done publicly, you know, as any legitimate such audit would be carried out. And they're all pretty much modeled in some fashion on the fake audit that was carried out in Maricopa. Which normalized the idea of having these fake audits. Correct. You know, that audit by the Ninja Turtles that not only failed to find evidence of fraud, but also, as we discussed earlier this week, with an actual election professional who audited the ninja's audit, if you will, found that the ninjas appeared to, in his words, make their results up out of whole cloth. But as another such pretend audit gets underway in Wisconsin, this point today via the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about the guy leading the review seems worth noting just to give you an idea of the legitimacy or lack thereof of this particular operation in the ongoing attempt to, yes, steal the 2020 election and or similar similar elections in the not at all distant future. The attorney leading a partisan review of Wisconsin's 2020 election acknowledged this week that he doesn't understand how elections are supposed to be run. Hey, cool. Awesome. Just, Just like the Ninja Turtles in Arizona. The admission by... Former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who has been placed in charge of this thing, comes as he subpoenas mayors and election officials uh, for this investigation that he knows nothing about. As uh, Journal Sentinel uh, reporter Molly Beck tweeted yesterday, Gableman served subpoenas to five mayors today to testify at his rented office space in Brookfield, Wisconsin, on October 22nd. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway says, quote, if I'm going to go to Brookfield and answer questions in a strip mall, it should be open to the public. Yeah, you think? But Gableman's uh, comments about not knowing how elections work raises fresh fresh questions about how long Gableman's taxpayer-financed review is going to take. He called an October 31 deadline that was set for him by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss unrealistic. Of course, October 31 would be just uh, three days shy of a year since the election that was lost by Donald Trump and won by Joe Biden, according to all available evidence. In an interview late Tuesday before addressing the Green Bay City Council about his plans, Gableman said, quote, most people, myself included, do not have a comprehensive understanding or even any understanding of how elections work. Perfect. Glad you hired him, Wisconsin. Smartly done. Gableman's acknowledgement that he does not know how elections work comes 10 months after he told a crowd of supporters of Former President Donald Trump, without evidence that elected officials had allowed bureaucrats to, quote, steal our vote. Sure, hire that guy. Again, this is the former 
state Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, which might give you an idea of why the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin has been such a partisan joke for so many years. Recounts in the state's two most populous counties, public recounts, uh, and court decisions uh, determined that, yes, Joe Biden won the state by more than 20,000 votes. Nonetheless, Voss this summer hired Gableman and gave him a $676,000 budget to review the election. Because, of course, yeah, yeah. I'm just so happy for Wisconsin that yeah. you get to lose $650,000 on this. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that's what being a conservative is like. He wanted to hire someone who knows absolutely nothing about elections and then give them hundreds of thousands of dollars to investigate elections. Not wasteful spending at all. See why I don't call them conservatives? A spokesperson uh, for Voss, the assembly speaker, did not say why he hired someone who does not know the ins and outs of elections rather than hiring an expert on the issue. Election officials for weeks have questioned Gableman's competence to handle this review, noting he has associated with conspiracy theorists, suggested clerks must prove their innocence. Again, a Supreme Court justice uh, and has sent a subpoena to the Milwaukee City clerk uh, who has no election duties whatsoever. Gableman this summer also met with officials conducting a partisan review of the Arizona election. He attended the South Dakota Forum hosted by the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, who has baselessly claimed that China hacked the election. So, yeah, it's not like he knows nothing about elections. <laughs> More recently, he has also been in touch with Shiva. Ayadurai, uh, known among the MAGA mob as Dr. Shiva, who falsely stated that Massachusetts destroyed a million ballots, has claimed without evidence that votes were taken away from Trump based on the science fiction novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And Dr. Shiva also got all kinds of stuff wrong in his pre presentation to the to the Arizona State Senate a few weeks ago in about his review of absentee ballot envelopes as part of the Ninja Turtles audit. Uh, both he and Turtle CEO Doug Logan were invited to testify on Thursday on Capitol Hill at a congressional hearing on the Arizona audit by the House Oversight Committee, a so-called uh, audit which the Turtles uh, had claimed was needed because of transparency to learn what really happened in Arizona. Yet neither Dr. Shiva nor CEO Doug Logan of the Cyber Ninjas agreed to testify before that committee today. So much for transparency. I guess they were uh, busy counting their money instead. Hopefully they're better at counting their money than they are at counting the votes <laughs> of voters in Arizona. Quick break and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Are we going to make it? Yeah, sure. We're on time? Yeah. 
Only if I go right now, though, right? Yes. Okay. Right now, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. The pipeline has essentially been pulled like a bowstring. And so at its widest point is 105 feet away from where it was. Ship's anchor appears to have caused devastating Southern California oil spill. Fossil fuel industry receives $11 million in subsidies every minute, new report finds. Plus, drinking water for a minimum of 150 families in the Commonwealth was contaminated. Pennsylvania Attorney General files criminal charges against pipeline developer. All of those criminal stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We are going to rewild parts of the country. We're planting tens of millions of trees, otters, are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for decades. Beavers that have not been seen on some rivers since Tudor times, massacred for their pelts and now back. And if that isn't conservatism, my friends, I don't know what is. And I don't know what it is either, Mr. Prime Minister. This is your Green News Report. Fill back beaver, I say. Okay, Desi Doyen, I have no idea what Boris Johnson was up to there, (laughs) but whatever it is, I'm good with it. Build back beaver. What do you have for us today? Well, first, an update on that massive Orange County offshore pipeline oil spill that has forced the closure of miles of Southern California's famous beaches. It's now said to have dumped about 144,000 gallons of crude oil, 20,000 gallons more than original estimates. What? Who could have predicted that? Oh, yeah, we did. Officials say the rupture may have been caused by a ship's anchor that hooked and dragged the pipeline. If true, it would be another bizarre consequence of the pandemic, which has disrupted the global supply chain, creating an epic backlog of cargo ships crowding the area waiting to unload. So it was a cargo ship that couldn't get to shore that ended up tearing up the pipeline? That appears to be the case. Oh, brother. Also under investigation is why the pipeline company didn't report the leak to the Coast Guard and federal officials for hours, even though EPA rules require immediate disclosure. Plus, the pipeline was supposed to be equipped with high-tech sensors that the oil industry claims should have instantly detected the leak. Yes, that is what they always claim, isn't it? And by the way, taxpayers are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry's destructive impact. A new analysis by the International Monetary Fund finds that globally, last year alone, the fossil fuel industry received almost $6 trillion in government subsidies. $6 trillion in one year. That equates to the fossil fuel industry pulling in about $11 million a minute in 2020. <laughs> but that's globally, right? Yes. So not so bad at all. IMF reports that in no country do fossil fuel prices reflect its full environmental or supply costs. Yep. A new report has determined the historical emissions responsibility of big polluting nations. UK-based Carbon Brief analyzed the total carbon dioxide emissions of countries since 1850. And the U.S., which has profited the most from the use of fossil fuels, is the number one historical contributor to the climate crisis. We're number one. Responsible for 20 percent, or one-fifth, of all CO2 emissions in the atmosphere. Now, that matters. 
matters because CO2 persists in the atmosphere for a thousand years. China is number two, responsible for 11 percent of total global carbon emissions, followed by Russia, Brazil and Indonesia. Six of the top 10 historical emitters, including China, have not yet updated their pledges to cut their emissions in advance of the crucial UN COP26 climate summit in Glasgow next month. Finally, in accountability news, Pennsylvania's Democratic Attorney General Josh Shapiro this week charged Texas-based pipeline company Energy Transfer with 48 counts of environmental crimes related to the Mariner East 2 fracked gas pipeline. The majority of charges allege that since 2017, Energy Transfer has illegally released toxic industrial waste and drilling fluids in 11 counties across the state, which polluted lakes, rivers, wetlands, and drinking water supplies. How unlike them? Hundreds of thousands of gallons of contaminated drilling fluid found its way out of the drill path into our waterways and into some Pennsylvania homes. And evidence presented showed the drinking water for a minimum of 150 families in the Commonwealth was contaminated. So energy transfer partners, aren't they the ones who own the Dakota Access Pipeline? Oh, yes, they are. The one that ships 600,000 barrels of crude a day up the Missouri River through North Dakota and that was unlawfully approved uh, for completion and is now undergoing a second environmental review court-ordered even while it's still allowed to operate. (laughs) That's the one. I'm sure everything will be fine. Go get him, Mr. Attorney General. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Breaking the law, breaking the law. Yes. Breaking the law, breaking the law. And they're busted, I hope. I hope so, too. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyan, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate or just hit the donate button anytime you're a Bradblog. Is that asking too much? <laughs> uh, you can also drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. That is it. I will see you there until we see you here next time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 